Welcome to I'm a Writer But. My guest today is Tanya James. Tanya James is the author of the novels The Tusk That Did the Damage and Atlas of Unknowns and the short story collection Aerograms. Her fiction has appeared in Freeman's, Granta, The New Yorker, O, The Oprah Magazine, One Story, and A Public Space. Tanya has been a fellow of Ragdale, McDowell, the Sustainable Arts Foundation, and the Fulbright Program. She teaches in the MFA program at George Mason University and lives in Washington, D.C. Her new novel is Loot, a spellbinding historical novel set in the 18th century, a hero's quest, a love story, the story of a young artist coming of age, and an exuberant heist adventure that traces the bloody legacy of colonialism across two continents and 50 years. Welcome, Tanya. Thank you, Lindsay. It's such a thrill to be here. Oh, I'm so happy that you're here. I tore through your book. It is a romp. <laughs> I mean, it's so pleasing to look at. And I, um, it's like a book that matches its cover. That's a weird thing to say, but it's just like, it's, it is such an adventure. So I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you. It means so much to me. I love this podcast. Oh, thank you. Well, then, as you know, we always ask our writers to read to us at the very beginning. So please read to us. Okay, here we go. Um, I thought I would read from sort of the middle of the novel. This is um, the novel begins with a guy named Abbas, who is a woodcarver. It's set in the turn of the 18th century. And he was tasked with building this huge mechanical tiger And he did a good job on that. And so he's been promoted to work on this new structure called the elephant clock, which is actually based on a structure by this real life polymath named Al Jazari. So um, that's all you need to know so far. Abbas doesn't mind the silence. In fact, he prefers the sole company of carving, the sanctity of it, the way the wood almost displays a wit of its own, how it makes and unmakes its own rules, that a cut cannot be undone that the grain may change depending on the cut, that you might expect a line to go one way only for it to swerve, that total control will never be yours. At night, in bed, Abbas thinks of Al-Jazari, a man who began humbly, the son of a rice merchant. This detail for Abbas holds mystery and meaning and invites him to imagine himself in the great man's place. Of course, he knows he is no Al-Jazari and never will be. He has no head for conceiving ingenious devices, though in the minutes before sleep, he imagines a fleet of mechanical horses, perfectly jointed and galloping across a battlefield, blasting bullets from their flaring, fist-sized nostrils, or a row of mechanical notch girls who twirl with the turning of the hour. The notch girls would be identical in feature, with high foreheads and wide-set eyes, like the ones he witnessed dancing in Tipu's gardens years ago. Though he hasn't seen her since, he remembers her still, some nights he, he reinvents her in explicit detail, and Davy too, so much so that he ends up disgracing his sheets. Never mind that he lacks the skill to make a notch girl clock or a battle horse. At night, his future feels to him expansive, oceanic. The future has yet to test him, yet to present him with the most difficult decision of his life. His mind glitters with ideas, yet he has no idea of how much luck he will need. I'll stop there. Thank you so much. What a good place to stop. Giving them a little, a little taste, <laughs> a little foreshadowing there. Um, I like to go into any book that I'm reading, not knowing a single thing about it, because I find like as a writer, you're already doing too much when you're reading a book. I mean, maybe it's not true for you, but for me, I'm, I'm always thinking about like, how did this writer do this? How did, so I'm, my mind is working too much as I'm reading anyway. And I just don't want 
to know. And I want the book to continually reveal itself to me. So as I was reading your book, I I'm reading these wonderful, beautiful descriptions. I could see this tiger, um, Tipu Sultan's tiger um, that you mentioned. And, but I thought, could this be real? <laughs> and then I found myself Googling it and it, and it was a real thing. And I was completely blown away at how real it was and how um, beautifully you rendered it just using words. Um, and I want to know like, where, wh- where were you when this idea came to you? How did it come to you to write this epic tale, starting with a boss and this, and this tiger? Mm, I mean, I have to say, I, I can't think about the beginning of this novel without thinking about what a mess I was when I first started trying oh. to write it. I I had had I'd published a novel in 2015, I around the same time I had my first son. And then I, you know, in a kind of desperate fit to sort of remind myself that I was still a writer, um, wrote two different novels, or drafted them, couldn't get them to work had my second son in 2018 and I just had never, I had always thought of myself as something of a decisive writer. Like I would have an idea and I would see it through. And I was also thought of myself as somewhat a fast writer. And, um, and I just, there was just this period of time where I, I couldn't find my way and, and I would and write things. Yeah. I, I just want to stop you there and ask you if having, years now to look back do you think that was um I was very insulted when people would ask me this after I had kids oh how's it changed your writing how's it changed everything for you because you don't know in the moment you know and and I was doing the same things you were I'm going to write a novel I'll show everyone you know um just so looking back do you feel like it was just things were changed for you I mean I think I I've heard you talk about this to some degree too, Lindsay, but that that there's some extent of um, change and transformation being, uh, it's happening and I'm trying to resist the, the, I'm trying to resist this idea that motherhood is going to change me so completely because Mm -hmm. part of it is I wasn't sure, you know, I don't know, maybe it's turning 40 and, Mm. and I do think there's something about one's relationship to time that changes inevitably whether whether you become a parent or not that mm-hmm. that you can kind of see your parents are aging and you can kind of I, I found myself feeling like well what do I really want to spend my time on do I really want to put a book out into the world assuming that it would be even published but a book that um that I don't that doesn't really matter to me or doesn't feel personal to me or doesn't reflect something about me in this moment in time. And I think, I think um, I'm still, you know, to be honest, I'm still trying to piece together what that, I wonder if I need another 10 years to kind of be able to look back and reflect on how, how, in what ways um, becoming a parent did change me. Because there's also the fact that I, I was taking on a full-time tenure track job at the same time. So there are all these ways in which my life was changing and I was trying to assert the the writer I thought I was throughout that. And it just, you know, I I mean, I just couldn't find my way into the work I was writing. I felt like it was work that anybody could write. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not, uh, I couldn't find my way in. I don't know if that, if that, if you had that kind of experience, but 
but that was, and anyway, so I, I was just kind of, and I would abandon these things and I, I actually found it kind of liberating to abandon them. It was easier to abandon them than work on them. So mm. I'd abandoned these two things. And then I, um, I happened across this idea, this, I mean, this image, this Tipu's tiger in a book. And I just thought oh, that somehow it's delightful to me. And um, that there's this Indian ruler that I only barely knew about and that he had this bizarre thing made, basically making fun of the British and but also <laughs> really full of his contempt for them. I'd never seen anything like it. And um, and so I kept looking into it. And then I I wrote two chapters and I'd never done this before. I I, you know, I was it was such an uncertain time for me. And so I I wrote to my agent and I said, can you just take a look at these and tell me if I should keep going? Oh, wow. And I, I usually don't do that. I, I want the thing to be solid. I care a lot what other people think. Right. You know, certain friends of mine, I don't want to think I'm just like an idiot. So I, I sent her these kind of unformed things and she did. She told me to keep going and she said she would um, she would handcuff me to my desk. If I didn't. <laughs> and I love that kind of tough love. And and that that helped me a lot. It's um, amazing how an agent knows when to say, yes, keep going. And when to say, you know, tactfully, like, maybe not this. Yeah. You know, I, it's, it's. It, it is hard. I don't know how they know. I think that's why that maybe that's why they're agents. Because I said, I wouldn't know, you know, if a student gave me one chapter of one novel and another chapter of another novel. I wouldn't know which one to say like, okay, this is the one. Maybe she, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe she was just trying to be encouraging. I, I'm afraid to ask, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but it meant everything. I printed that email out and put it on my bulletin board and just having oh. one person in your corner is kind of enough to just, just finish. So it's quite amazing because your career is so, um, envious not envious envy inducing <laughs> your career is envious mm-hmm. um and i think a lot of writers c- coming up would look at your bio and think wow that's you know that's a writer that's a capital w writer capital a author and it's incredible that there's these times in our lives where we we have to still access that part of ourselves it, it kind of like doesn't feel as close at times and so we do these things to to find that person again, to find that part of ourselves again. Um, and I, and I almost think, you know, I, when I found out I was surprised pregnant with my third, I wrote a screen, a uh, uh, like a pilot and mm. I wrote a YA novel. <laughs> I wrote oh, wow. a children's book and none of them were really me, but I, I was, I was searching for a way to show, like, I'm still, I'm still capable of these things, even though my life's going to change wildly again for the third time, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm still, and and I almost feel like sometimes, you know, I've never looked at those things again, Um, but going through the motions and like sitting down and doing the thing, doing the work every single day, um, even though it, it wasn't meaningful, like in a creative way, it was meaningful in a, like, in a commitment way. Do you feel the same way about those books that you wrote? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I really like the way you're framing that because I think I think that it is so much about the practice. And maybe there's a part of you that knew that, that, that you know, you're hopeful. You're always hopeful that the thing is going to work, but that there's something about the practice that's sacred. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, I can say that they're failed drafts, but for one thing, I mean, you know, you just never know. I, I never know if maybe 
some at some point down the line you'll you'll look back and say i i know what to do now with that thing mm-hmm. but i also it i i just am a happier person when i'm writing i it's just i i think that i would be i i think right now i'm not writing anything and it's it's very hard for me i feel like something of a real grump. Like I just feel detached from an essential part of myself. And so, you know, I agree with you. I don't think that time spent was a waste just because the product didn't, that, just because there's no final product to it, but it's just the practice that it matters, like make drawing a kind of border around that mm-hmm. part of yourself. Um, yeah. It's like you're making, you're making, 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 and you're not like, sometimes it feels like you're, <laughs> in very deep water as a parent. Right. And you're like, just your nostrils and your mouth are breathing. (laughs) (laughs) And, and so like that air is coming from this other thing, you know, like your, your child, your children consume you and they should, right. They, they, they need you wholly. Right. But then there's this other thing that you have to do for yourself. Yeah. That, that other private language. I mean, you, I do feel like I, I love, I mean, I, I love the advice of, um, stepping back from writing and filling the well, but I've never been able to take it. And I think it's just that I, this is just this other language that I've been speaking for so long and that I, I just, I'm happier when I'm, when I'm attached to that part of myself. I think that kind of understanding comes from, you know, just a long time of staying with it, you know, like so much of it is just like staying with it and staying with it. And then understanding like, um, I have to do this for my own mental health. Like I have to do this for my own, like actual ability to be there, be more present for my, the people that matter to me and and the things that matter to me. Yeah. Yeah. I remember being in college and I took a class with this professor who I thought was, is, is she, she is a brilliant writer. And she said at one point, it, just in order to do her work, she had small children and she just threw a bag of marshmallows at them just so <laughs> she could go back to her desk. And at the time I was like, wow, that's kind of, that doesn't sound like a parent to me. But now I'm like, that's the kind of stories I, that's the kind of like, the kind of anecdotes I I would have appreciated as a young a mother of younger children, that it's okay you know, you need it. You need that for yourself and they'll be fine with the marshmallows. Yeah. Yeah, And it's good for them to see that too. You know, Mm -hmm. like it's really good for them to see, like my kids sometimes are like, well, you don't go to an office like daddy. Yeah. And I'm like, but I work. I have a nook in (laughs) my bed. You see my laptop all over the house. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, I should display my books more prominently. I need to have like Andy Warhol-esque portraits of myself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my god yeah i'm doing something kids okay i yeah, i took my kids to the bookstore yesterday because i had heard there was a copy of my book there oh. and it was just the perfect encapsulation of what it's like to be a writer because there was some stranger there with his friends and they were like this is my favorite book and he tapped on my last book and i thought he was serious and i was like that's my book and they were like really for real and as we chatted, it became clear to me that he was just joking. Oh, no. <laughs> he just tapped on a random book. And I was <gasps> like, this is exactly what it is to be a writer. It's like these incredible flights of like, I can't believe this is happening. And then I can't believe this is happening. Like, I just, <laughs> so oh. 
I fled, but it was cute. It was like, you know, I was like, that's actually very appropriate, you know, that both of these things are like side by side in your life. Like, absolutely. It's like constant humility. Yes. Yes. It's just like, okay, yes, I will take my spoonful of humility today. Yes, I did it. (laughs) And now I'm going to have an ice cream and we're fine. (laughs) Yeah. I know. I do think back to when I worked at Barnes and Noble when I was like 20. And I, th- and I remember putting books on the tables and shelving them and thinking like, maybe one day my book will be at Barnes and Noble. And it's like, important to remember like, oh my God, uh-huh. my book is at Barnes and Noble from time to time. It's cool. Actually, that is, that is a piece of advice that a non-writer gave me the other day. She was like, write down right now what you hope will happen. Wow. And, and that way later on, I mean, you, we talk about like shifting goal posts or I think that's the word shifting goal Yeah, posts. you're right. Yep. But like. Actually, just writing it down then allows you to kind of revisit the person you were when you had that dream. And then when it happens, it's it's like you have some sense of, well, I got I got somewhere like I did get that thing I wanted. And, you know, there are good things happening. You have yet to take that advice, but I liked it in my mind. Well, I will say I'm a writer, but has a reputation of being lucky in that way, because I did ask Jack Gems a similar question. Oh, my God. Liz sputtered. Right. Like she was like, I, I I mean, I guess like, I mean, like one day, like, I, I guess like the Guggenheim would be nice. And then she won the Guggenheim. She got it. I, okay. <laughs> I read the, the grip, the grip of it, which I, oh. I taught in my, in one of my classes, loved it. And um, I listened to your interview. And when I saw her name in the Guggenheim list, I almost screamed. I was like, that is so weird. Cause I listened to that episode. That's she, amazing. I didn't know that, that you that you listened to these. That is like, yeah, I'm up. Oh so, my God. I can't even, okay. So cool. so I'm just going to put it out there that I want a Guggenheim too. Just going to say, um, Hey, why isn't that in your bio? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I want, no, I didn't say one. I said, I want. Oh, you That's want. My, okay. This is okay. my wishing well moment because it happened for her on the show. And so I think um, I knocked on wood for her. So I'm knocking on wood for you as well. I'm knocking on my, not fake wood, but, um, uh, Wait, what was the, I can't remember what you just said. We're just talking about naming what you want and like appreciating where you're at when you want those things. Yeah. Yeah. And I had something to say and I can't remember, but anyway, yes, I list. Okay. Oh, I was going to say what this podcast, this podcast, so I was writing this book while I was listening to this podcast. Oh I feel gosh. like I started listening around the same time I was really starting on the book. And so it's just been my friend, like my companion. I don't want to be, make you uncomfortable, but you um and also Alex Higley former host what up um, Alex yeah I I like there was one I I can pinpoint a specific moment in the novel that I that was a result of listening to one of these interviews where the person had been talking about putting constraints on themselves mm. and I want to say it was J Robert Lennon but I'm not sure I oh, think it was. he's so brilliant so brilliant um and um and I think he might've mentioned a prompt that, that he gave his students that was like, maybe it was like, write an entire story in monosyllabic words. Mm-hmm. You know how in the middle of a novel, things just can get kind of monotonous mm-hmm. for you as a writer and mm-hmm. as a reader. And I, I just like, you know, let me just try that. And there's a part in the middle where the character, well, well, the section is basically like a diary of someone at sea. Mm-hmm. And I wanted this one diary entry to be, I just said, okay, I'm going to write this all in monosyllabic words. And it, it didn't end up being entirely that, but it was, it was really exciting 
And that challenge kind of led to a different emotional, kind of heightened emotional tenor. And it was just out of simply kind of playing with this constraint, which I wouldn't have thought about if I hadn't been listening to that episode. That is incredible. I, the podcast is over now. We're done. We're not doing any more episodes. <laughs> and we're we've done. reached the pinnacle. That is incredible. And I'm so glad that you brought up that that section because I was going to ask you the structure of this novel is so fun. Um, and and we're given a boss at the beginning, and then we're shifted, and we are now looking at him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of takes us all the way to the end. Um, and I wanted you to talk a little bit about about that choice about, you know, like we are close with a boss and then, and then we are seeing him from the outside. Can you give us a little bit about that choice? Yeah. I mean, I wanted to, I knew I had to get him across uh, from India to France or England. I wasn't sure where he would end up, but um, I at first thought I I, I really approached that whole section with trepidation. Cause I was like, Oh God, first of all, I, um, I, I, I just, for some reason was resisting it. I was, I, I just felt like this is going to be hard to convince a reader, you know, how it's just going to be boring because more, I tried to write it from his perspective in the same sort of voice that I had been writing in. And I just was bored. I, Mm. I think it's just that middle of the novel boredom that sets in. And I tend to feel like I want, I have to make some kind of break from what I've been doing. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, um, the form of a diary or the epistolary forms are so, um, I think they are really interesting and exciting to see. Even just visually, it just looks different. And it is sort of, um, they're mysterious in terms of what a character is willing to say and what they're willing to, they, they don't want to say, what they're trying to hide. Um, and I thought, well, Abbas wouldn't write a diary. He wouldn't necessarily be literate in English. He might mm-hmm. speak English, but he couldn't, he wouldn't be able to write it. And, um, and nor would he be the kind of character who would write his own memoirs. Um, but there were a lot of people at that time, sailors, um, former captains who wanted to write their memoirs and who wanted to leave some record of themselves behind. And so I came up with this other character, this sailor who, who becomes friends with Abbas and their relationship is sort of the arc of that middle section. Mm-hmm. But in a more general sense, I I just, I like formal experimentation, like some kind of, I like stories that do that, that kind of disrupt themselves. And I know that it's taxing for a reader when they first encounter the disruption, that it's it it's demanding something of the reader that mm-hmm. the reader might necess- not necessarily want to give. Like to, you know, a lot of readers don't want that that um that imagined world to be broken in some way or uh and I just I just really like the surprise of it. And I I when I encounter some like something like that in fiction I feel like the writer is telling me like, be patient. I'm going to make this payoff for you. It's going to, it's going to have meaning. I know it looks like formal trickery in some way, but it it will have a reason for being here if you just stick with me. So I, that was my hope that, that even though it's somewhat of a disruption that it will have a kind of payoff. Do you have a favorite author or book that does that kind of disruption? I mean, I, I always think about, not always, I think a lot about 
The Shawl by Louise Erdrich. It's a Mm. short story that I encountered in college. And um, it starts out in a kind of distant third person. And it almost feels like a folktale in the first half. And then there's a space break. And then there's a suddenly like a first person contemporary voice. And it's, I, when I first read it, I just thought that is so jarring. And, um, but I, you know, but she's such a confident writer and, and incredible writer that you just kind of go with it. You're already, you're already kind of in the spell of the story in the first half. So you, 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 you have a sense that she knows what she's doing. And so, um, and then by the end, you can see why she's made that choice and the story feels so undeniable in that structure. Like there's just no other way the story could have been. And it reaches its emotional kind of force because of that structural decision. So I just love that the way, you know, the form and the feeling are connected. Like they, you can't have one without the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, you know, mimicked it shamelessly in college and tried to <laughs> do all these like jumping points of view. And, um, but yeah, I think about that story a lot. It's an old one. I'm so glad you said something about confidence. You had mentioned that you were a confident writer before you had kids. Um, and then sort of, it was a journey, um, writing those two books that didn't end up being published yet, um, mm-hmm. to get to writing loot and loot to me is a very confident book. Um, it's not just the jumps in, in form and structure and, and point of view. Um, but it's, it's the command you have of the time period. It's the way that you render everything so vividly. How did you get that kind of confidence back? Was it just that you knew you were having fun writing this or, or what was it like to, to, to get that confidence? Mm, I think that's a great question. I mean, I think that I think there are certain moments in writing where you feel like the thing has a life beyond you, like that, that the thing has, that is just running past your fingertips. You know, I think that's what I couldn't quite find that rhythm with the other books. But um, with this one, I felt like, and, and a lot of it had to do with the voice, which I've heard described as editorial omniscience, where oh. the narration sometimes feels like its own personality like it can it's sort of commenting on characters or commenting on a historical event and in some way it's it's not really anyone's perspective um in the novel it's closer to my own perspective and i think that hitting on that voice kind of made me feel like okay i am i i'm not really an expert i but i'm i'm expert i'm not an expert at all of these time periods and various wars and colonialism um but i'm an expert of this uh this you know kind of territory of of fiction like this is my i i'm i'm here with you i'm i'm the storyteller i think that was some way of of um tricking myself too into feeling authority over this time and place Mm. yeah I love the idea of tricking oneself because I do feel like especially writing a longer a longer thing you do have to continually trick yourself into doing the work like you were talking about finding little playful ways to get back in Mm. Ling Ma was saying she thinks novels should be written very quickly and stories you can sort of take your time with Mm. um 
So I want to know, aside from giving yourself that little constraint, is there other tricks that you use as you're writing something long like this? Mm. Are you well, picturing the reader? Are you picturing the Guggenheim? <laughs> <laughs> I'm laying in bed. I, I, part of the reason why I read that part of the novel was because I felt like I was, it was kind of my own like reflection of myself as a writer that you just, you know, have these like, um, when you're working, you're working and you're sort of so engaged with the, with your medium, whatever it is, language, uh, wood. And, and that at times at night, I just have, I just, I feel like I've had those moments where I'm like, what if, you know, what if this thing happened or that thing happened? Um, I feel like the only way, and I'm curious about your own, how you work too, because you're a short story writer as well and, Mm -hmm. and a novelist. And I, I feel like I can't commit completely to a novel. I, I, I need breaks and in those breaks, I, I want to be working on something else. And so that's when I'm turning to short stories. And sometimes it's a short story that I've put away for a long time. And I, you know, the time away has allowed me to, you know, get some distance from it, but I don't, I feel like I can't, um, I can't just commit to one thing at a time. Do you juggle projects at the same time or are you? I I didn't used to because I, um, I used to have this thing where I could not function unless I, the thing I was working on was finished or, or I had like, or I knew how it was going to be finished. Yeah. So I couldn't, like I wrote, I got so used to writing flash fiction that I could sit down and write a whole thing and then be done with it, you know, and I got used to that feeling. Yeah. And, um, you know, then I, when I started writing novels, I was using the same techniques and like sitting down and writing a whole like scene or whatever. Um, but now that my, my time, my available time has changed so much and my just brain has changed so much. And it's like you said, it could be motherhood. It could be, I'm 43, you know, it could be a variety of things. Um, it could be that it's Monday, you know, (laughs) it's just, I find that I need, I need to feel like I have command of what I'm working on. I need to feel like, um, okay, I know what I'm going to work on today. I'm going to work on this. Um, so sometimes it's an essay. Sometimes it's, you know, um, like dipping into another novel or something. Um, but yeah, I, I find that that's one thing that's changed is I'm, I'm more able, I'm more open to working on things without, um, forcing myself to know when they're going to be done. Mm -hmm. I think that there's something really, I, I, I do feel like there's something really fantastic. Like the feeling of finishing something is so, it feels so good, like to work on a very short piece in the middle of a long longer project just because it just feels good to finish something to me, which I, I mean, when you spoke about flash fiction, I, I do remember that uh, any short, any story I wrote while I was working on this novel was tended to be very short, just as I just wanted to have something feel kind of done. Mm -hmm. And then I could go back to the cave of whatever this (laughs) novel was becoming. Um, Yeah. And it helps you access that immediacy too. Like I feel writing something complete, like a complete story, a complete world. Um, and I did, and I read some of your flash pieces, um, just before I got on here and anyone who's listening should go seek those out. Cause they're wonderful. Um, the one about, um, time passing so quickly, the mother and, and having a baby, and then suddenly the baby's a grown adult. 
killed me. Um, but it, it helps you access that immediacy of language and immediacy of voice. I feel it helps you remind yourself of that. Cause it is like, you are just like trudging at some point in your novel. Right. And you're like, what was I even thinking? <laughs> you know, and then you write this really zippy thing and you're like, okay, yes, I remember who I am now. <laughs> yeah, I do. Uh, I, I do feel like so much of writing a novel can feel like moving furniture from one room to another. <laughs> like, okay, like this character needs to go outside now oh. and get in the car or whatever. And like, then just to go into a story where it's all like, you know, language and it's just, you know, the shorter it is, I just feel like the more, um, there's just less furniture moving and more about just a feel a particular trying to trap a certain magic. Um, so I, yeah, I, 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 I need that too. It is the magic. It's exactly right. It's furniture moving versus magic. And you're doing both when you're a writer, <laughs> yeah. you're accessing both. You're leaving yourself open to both. Um, and that in itself is work. Mm-hmm. So you are an expert at moving time this book spans 50 years. Um, It spans wars and countries. And I want to know, you know, how you, how you kept your, I feel like if I tried to write a book that spanned 50 years, it would be 3000 pages long because I would be so painstaking. (laughs) (laughs) I am, I am not great at moving time. How did you get yourself to keep moving forward with the story? I feel like I, um, I, one day, someday, I would like to write a slim, sleek, first-person novel that is <laughs> in a one-week span or something. I don't know. I love novels like that, and I just feel like maybe it's not in my DNA, or maybe it will be, you know, years from now. But I uh, I tend to jump, um, jump around in terms of perspective and in terms of um, place. Um, I think that's just sort of my nature. It's almost like it's not even something I'm trying to do. It's just something I naturally do. I knew that I wanted, you know what? I I wanted at the outset, I thought I was writing a a country house novel, like an English country house novel. I just thought this would be kind of cool. You know, Um, why not? Why can't I? Um, And so I thought it was going to be about these two characters who are going to steal this mechanical tiger or try to swindle this tiger out of this older woman who is, you know, wealthy and who owns this part part of her oriental art collection. And I just thought that was going to be the arc, the whole arc of the novel. And then I, I often do this. I come up with a situation and I have to think about the characters in a kind of, um, I have to think backwards. You know, I, I, I'm trying to think about the character that would do something like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. And um, I couldn't think of who would do something like this, who would care enough about this object that has no intrinsic value. It's just wood and glue and gears. It's not like, you know, a, a thousand other things that were plundered, which were like made of jewels and gold and all this stuff. So I was just trying to think who would do it. And I, and the more I thought about it, the more I kept thinking about the artist. And then I kept going back and back and back in his history. And, and it felt important to me. It felt important to the novel to, to, to show that moment of self-discovery or those moments of self-discovery and, and um, kind of coming into his own as an artist. And so that's how that's actually how it started so far back. But by in, initially, what I wanted was something much tighter. And it gave you clues to work with because 
apparently Tipu's tiger has um two different kinds of like the 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 organ is french right yes yeah, yeah. and so um it gave you a clue of like okay so there was multiple artisans working yes. on this and it says something about the time too that you know tipu was sort of bringing i don't know if this part is true but in in your novel tipu was bringing over these french experts on you know science and art and music and um he was yeah he was he was an interesting guy it was a, he was really a visionary in terms of what he the kind of industries he promoted in Mysore and also he understood that if Mysore was going to compete with Europe they he needed french european expertise and um technology and so he his whole ambition was to kind of keep bringing you know there's a strong french presence in Mysore and a lot of that was him trying to get um, certain industries started and using their military tactics. That's why his military was so such a kind of um, strong rival to the East India Company was because they they were borrowing from French tactics. And so he 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 really understood that and he commissioned this thing. And I I couldn't find any information. I don't think there's any information about who exactly made it, but I knew that the internal mechanisms were European or French, mm-hmm. and the external. Uh, the the tiger that carving style is Mysorean is local and so I just imagined I just tried to imagine who that could be I found like a name in a in a a book Les L E Z E as a clockmaker and he was a clockmaker at the court and so I just completely um, just just made up the rest which at first felt a little funny because I thought am I taking too many liberties with actual people and. I just love Hilary Mantel and I love Andrea Barrett and mm-hmm. their things are so deeply, deeply researched. And I just thought that's sort of this idea of historical fiction in my mind that it it's um, that that's what it is, that, that being that meticulous. Um, mm-hmm. And I felt like I was kind of freewheeling um, and I was like, well, that's, this is what I have. It's sort of a void, but um but you brought it to life so beautifully. I mean, you brought my sword to life so beautifully and, you know, the time period and, and, you know, I don't know anything about any of it. So for me, it was also vivid. Um, and for you, you might be like, Oh, you know, look over here. Yeah. I really, because I couldn't go to India. It was during the pandemic and I had thought I will go to India. I will go to this city and I will see everything. And, and it, it, for a long time, I was just really just making things up as I went along. I finally did end up going to Mysore and. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I found it really, um, I, you know, I feel like one thing that I, the, the biggest thing I took away was how small everything is. Everything is much smaller than I thought, you know, the mm. city, the, even the palace, um, and I, it was all ruins. And there was one monument that I, that stuck out to me. And it's a monument that had all the names of the English soldiers who had died in the siege and all the Indian soldiers who had worked for the English or, you know, uh, were sepoys. And, um, and of course there are no names of the countless numbers of um, Mysorean um, forces that were killed. And I just thought there's so many things that in in my research that reminded me of these erasures and you know i think one of the things abbas says at some point is he keeps saying he wants to leave a mark on the world he wants to leave a mark and i think that's because i was just thinking about erasure and how um so much of my research 
is um there's just so many blanks Mm. yeah that's really sad yeah yeah but at the same time I didn't want to write a sad book and so I was like I got to make it fun too it it is so fun and um I have said that multiple times and each time I say it I think oh (laughs) I it's actually not that fun you know like it is really fun (laughs) to read and it's um and there's a heist you know and like all these things that people love to read adventure and um, meticulous details and location and characters that are so wonderful, but it's also really sad. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, I don't want to give too much away, but you know, a boss experiences a lot of sad things. Um, but you have to read the book to find that out. (laughs) I have a friend who's like, when are you going to write a funny book? (laughs) Why are you so sick? And I'm like, do you know how hard it is to write a comic novel? It's really hard. Yeah. Sometimes um, I think I'm being hilarious and yes. you know, and my agent's like, um, are you right. okay? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you don't know my life, Jim. <laughs> Agents. Yeah. That's right. The right questions. <laughs> um, the tiger is in the Victoria and Albert Museum now, right? It is. Yes. I yes. was hoping to be able to see it in motion. There's a little video that I found, but um, I don't, I don't think you get to hear. Does it still work? Do you know? Um, it works, but not very well. And, um, it doesn't sound like what it sounded back then. And I did find a video that showed it in motion, but it sounds so pathetic. Like it's just <laughs> so, if there's supposed to be, like, I had heard this description that the tiger will grunt and the soldier would moan in agony and all this stuff. And it's just, when you hear it, it's like, wah, wah. like it's, <laughs> it sounds really sad. Um, but I think back in the day, I think it had it had a good soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also it was like pretty like badass to commission something like that. Yes. Um, I mean, they have British visitors at some point, right? And they have to paint over all the battle scenes that they've, right? Yeah. I had read that, that he loved propaganda and he, he, he would have, would constantly have like propaganda of like British people looking stupid and drunk and smoking all the time and <laughs> Um, that that added to the kind of you know like I, I just love that propaganda played such a as big a role then as it does now um, in understanding who we are as a nation in relation to other nations you know mm-hmm. and, yeah propping up your own people and you know making sure they don't lose hope and yeah it makes sense yeah this is your fourth book on Knopf it is what is yeah. that like to have worked with such a such a wonderful giant in the publishing industry i i feel i i i'm with the same editor that i worked with um with my first book jordan pavlin i feel like she i i feel very very lucky because i do feel like i have a lot of friends who are at a crossroads in their career in terms of um it just gets harder to sell books um as mm. you kind of get further in your career which is kind of strange to me because I do feel like a lot of people I know are intellectually and emotionally like stronger than they were when they were a younger writer mm-hmm. but that maturity is not rewarded by the industry we are in and so you know I have friends who are kind of reckoning with trying to find a new agent or trying to find a new house and um I did not understand the degree to which luck plays a major role in a person's career when I was mm-hmm. a, a, a novice writer earlier on in my 
career. And now it just, I'm, I'm struck by that all the time because I'm always thinking how, how is it, you know, with friends of mine, I'm like, you're so brilliant. How could, how could, how could you be in this precarious position? How do people not see, but it's, it really is so much about luck and timing, but I, yeah, I feel very, I feel fortunate to be with my same editor, my same agent. She is, um, Jordan is, um, I think she really cares about careers, uh, about nurturing a writer across, um, you know, across their career. And and I'm lucky in that she she's still at the same house. I know a lot of people, you know, you included, like people people you work with, they they move to different places and then mm-hmm. it, it started to kind of follow them and it's, it's, yeah, it's a strange industry. And every time I try to talk to my students about it, it sounds depressing, but (laughs) it is. I mean, like, if you think about it broadly, it's overwhelming. Yes. And so it's important to just be like, I'm going to just take this next step now. And then I'm going to take another step and, you know, and it's just, it really is a miracle. And I, I also didn't understand that at the beginning of my career, Mm -hmm. um, what a miracle it is to, to get a book published, at any level. Um, I'm trying to celebrate it a lot more now as before it felt kind of like, um, uh, like braggy or whatever, or yes. Now I'm just like, Oh hell no, we're celebrating. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I was all about the modesty. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I, I think part of that, I think there's a kind of, um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I had, I just had this sense that it was always going to be fine. That I don't know why I thought that. Where did I get this idea? Maybe because nobody talked about how I think people talk more now about how how precarious it really is as you as you go along. Mm-hmm. I mean, every conversation I have with my agent is positive and wonderful and hedged with a lot of like, well, you know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he wants to make sure my expectations are where they need to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Half of my emails with my agent are, and with fingers crossed, fingers, yeah. fingers and toes crossed, you know? Yeah. At one point he was like, I can't even remember what he was saying. It was the context was like, he was really hoping for a big splash for me one day. And he was like, I really want that for you, Lindsay. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> am I dying? I'm dying. <laughs> oh, that's, I feel like that's a really good sign to have like a, a an agent that's emotionally invested in you. I know, I know. I feel so lucky. Gift. Yeah. I think of Jamie Attenberg. I always bring her up because mm-hmm. she's so um, communicative about her process and open about it and everything. And I love how she talks about breaking her books and having to fix them and stuff. And mm-hmm. the Middlesteens was a blockbuster for her. And it was her fifth, fifth book. I know. I love that book. And I remember my agent said this um, to me all the time that like so many of her writers, like the biggest books they had, like their breakout book was their fourth or their fifth. It wasn't their first. Right. And so you have to be able to have that chance. And if the system doesn't give you the chance to keep trying you know, how, how do you get there? So I, yeah, that I, that again is something I only understood from listening to people like her who happened to be open enough to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I love her um, newsletters mm-hmm. and how open she is about the feeling, what it feels like to give your work away to fellow readers, what she's looking for, you know, what she's struggling with. Um, yeah. She talks about the money too. She's, yeah. I mean, she'll just tell you, you know, and um, that's rare. That's yeah. pretty rare. Yeah. Yeah. 
I do think that's one of the good things about um, one of the good things about social media in terms of just just being more sophisticated about what what um, you know what it, what it looks like to be a writer in a practical sense. A lot of that for me, that education came from just listening to other people. Yeah, other writers. I mean, that's why this podcast exists. You know, yeah. it's like, what are we doing? Oh yeah, how are we doing this? Yeah, I I always tell my agent, I just want this book not to prevent me. You know, whatever book I'm trying to pitch him. I, I want, I always want to be able to do the next book. Mm-hmm. I don't want the like gavel bang book. That's like, well, that was it for her, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and I dedicated this book that's coming out in November to everyone who's still here. <laughs> uh, well, it's First of all, my birthday's in November. So I feel oh. like this is a gift to me. That oh my gosh. Um, but yeah, yeah, that I I I I feel that so much. Every time I finish a book, I'm like, I just please, just I don't care who takes it, just someone take it, so I can just keep going. And um, and then my husband reminds me that that was you know later after I've sold it, and then I have moved the goalpost ever farther. Mm-hmm. Like, remember when you said you just wanted to get published, and now you're, you're like, no, I don't remember that. I know. <laughs> Go get me some chocolate. <laughs> God damn it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like, um, you know, that, yeah, little things become somewhat magnified. I felt like it's one thing that's different in putting a book out now that I don't remember being a thing with my last book where all the anticipatory lists, there's like oh, 3000 mm-hmm. anticipatory lists. Yep. And if you're not on it, you're like, oh no. You're like, I am invisible. Yes. I'm done and it's over. But um yeah, I don't know. I yeah. Anyway, we're still here. We're still, we're still here. Yeah. So are you gonna celebrate in any way when this book drops on yeah. June thirteenth? I've thought a lot about different desserts. Ooh. I think small, Lindsay. I think small. I don't blame you. <laughs> I'm like, do I want a donut or several mm. donuts? You know, so Mainly I'm thinking food-based rewards, which don't last very long, but I should, I should think bigger. I should do something with that day. I don't know what. I know it's hard. And and especially when there's kids involved to be like, oh, I need a babysitter. <laughs> like, no, you know, I um, just want to eat a donut on the couch. <laughs> by myself with no one looking at me. Do, yes. you have, do you have an idea? Do you have like a bottle of something waiting? I've had people send me bottles of champagne over the years for various reasons, like a baby's born or a book is published. And I, I keep saving them. I keep thinking, okay, these are for when I'm going to celebrate. And then I'm like, why am I still saving them? Why aren't I celebrating? What is holding me back? Um, why don't you send me one of those, but um, I should, oh my gosh, I, I totally should. Yeah, that is a joke. But I, I, it's hard though, because when, when the book is coming out, I don't know about you, but I'm so focused on the two weeks from that time or yes. like just mm-hmm. so focused on like, okay, well, okay, next week I have to do this thing, but what I'm not doing this other thing. And I need to, you know, like, I'm just very like in the near future, based in the near future. And then thinking like, okay, I need to apply for something. I'm thinking in terms of deadlines because, yep. you know, apparently when you have a book come out, you should be applying for things. Um, but I, I totally, I, I, I feel like I need to this time, this time around, I need to just ha- mark off time in the schedule to just go and 
I don't know, lay in the park and stare up at the sky or something. I don't know. Exactly. Just to be in the moment of like, holy shit balls. There's so many people have this dream, including me, right? Including you. And it happened and it is happening, you know? And, um, and then you'll hold that moment forever. You know, it'll, it'll be there forever, you know? Yeah. I, I went to my 20th college reunion over the weekend and it was like time travel. And I, I, I was a film major in college and I, I went down into this um, theater where we used to screen our work and it was so much smaller than I remembered in my mind. It was so big. Wow. And I just, that feeling of like, that the world is just grand with possibility, but you're so small in it. And the distance between getting to what, to who you want to be, or um, the artist you want to be feels so vast. Mm -hmm. And I just, I I felt lucky that I was able to experience that right now, because I'm, I'm, like I said, just thinking so much about two weeks from now, Mm -hmm. but to kind of see yourself in this continuum um, is, is kind of amazing. And it's fun too, in those events, because, you know, you're around people who aren't writers necessarily. And when you say, oh yeah, I have a book coming out in June. They're like, what? Yes. (laughs) Like a a book, like a book I can go get. And you're like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of cool. That's kind of a dream, right? Yes. Yes. It's an absolute dream. And it's been an absolute dream talking to you. I'm so glad that you came on to talk to me about loot. Oh Um, my gosh. The time has flown. This was such a pleasure. So fun. The book is so fun and sad, which, you know, every great book has, has contains multitudes. Mm. Um, And it's out June 13th, which I believe if you're listening to this uh, on the day it drops is also today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So everybody go get it and everybody help Tanya celebrate by just accosting her on social media and congratulating her on this wonderful, wonderful book. Thank you so much, Lindsay. This has been so fun.